1: Well, today will be really interesting uh we are sitting down with Miranda Field all the way from saskatchewan, uh who is a teacher, but uh, I think it's
3: I think it's Saskatchewan I say Saskatchewan Can we get a deciding can we get can we get a deciding there uh, we go this is I'm how we're starting, starting here
1: great
0: it's not the way it's pronounced is not Saskatchewan
3: I knew it I also say <laughs> Quebec I knew it. so I, I, I so knew
0: it. you know so, what.
2: I, I don't even know how I say Saskatchewan. You, you know what else well, I say? There I, you
1: go. You know? Was, what did I say?
2: Did I say right Juan, or wrong?
1: You said Juan. Yeah. I, say, I also Juan, say Juan. Toronto. I pronounce the T in Toronto. I might as well be American.
2: <laughs> I think you, yeah, me too. I'm kind of there yeah, with you. Yeah. There you go.
1: Uh, Miranda, you're a teacher, but you're a special kind of teacher. Why don't you let our listeners know um, a little bit about your background and, uh, and the work that you do?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I've been a teacher here in Saskatchewan for about 15 years, and I've worn a lot of different hats. I've worked everything from mainstream classrooms to post-secondary. But my very first role was actually within the hospital schools. Uh, One of the things that a lot of people are not familiar with is that there are teachers in many of our urban hospitals. And these teachers in Canada specifically um, are licensed the same as any other teachers. So they're um, recognized and regulated under their provincial or their territorial bodies. And they are often employed by a larger urban school division. So yeah, one of my very first positions that I held was actually working in a rehabilitation hospital here in Saskatchewan.
2: Mm-hmm. Whoa, that's crazy! I actually have never ever heard of this in my entire Me life. Nope. I didn't know. I like, I feel like like this has rocked my world so much that this is a truth about our society that that there are teachers in hospitals. That like I feel like you missed your calling. Like I just, <laughs> I knew I knew this is where this I was going. Was, I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't going to say that because I don't know enough about it yet. But surely by the end of this, you I typically will. <laughs> don't really need that
3: much information to make your decision. You're on, you're on the right path. Yeah,
2: but I feel like I woke up this morning and I was I've been asleep for my entire life and now I'm realizing that this it, is a it is like a fundamental role. It in is society. very fascinating.
3: <laughs> like because so when you when, when I when i think of teacher when i just think of the word teacher i mean the most obvious connotation is school teacher so when you have teachers that are in hospitals what what does that role what does that what does that teaching look like
0: Yeah, so there's a few different roles um, that the teachers have, and I think it often depends on where you are situated, because the role will look different in a rehabilitation hospital versus a pediatric ward versus an adolescent uh, psychiatry unit or a specialized Mm -hmm. maybe eating disorder um ward so really these teachers um, are trained very often in either primary or secondary school um, in Saskatchewan here we're actually licensed to teach kindergarten through grade 12 so we wear a lot of different hats um, wow. we have our specialties yeah um, so depending on where you were for example in the rehabilitation hospital that I worked in I saw two different types of students um, I worked with students who were there for respite so students who had um Very often cognitive complexities or were wheelchair bound and they were offered respite from their families would be there for one or two week admission and we'd get to see them about two hours a day. And then the other students that I would see in that setting were also students who were in longer um, inpatient rehab rehabilitation programs. So they were having daily therapies, um, clinic meetings and daily kind of that multidisciplinary team approach. So I would see them in between one and two hour a day and we would just meet them where they are.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, is this like is this the kind of thing like when you finish teachers college and you go on to your first job working as a teacher in a in a hospital setting, like do you do you specialize in the training for that in your final years at, at like teachers college? Or is this the kind of thing where you get into the work, into the field, and it's kind of a, a process of like learn as you go while being kind of put in this position where a lot of school teachers don't end up?
0: Yeah, I would say more of the latter. To my knowledge, there aren't any specialized, um, Programs, let alone specialized teaching um, courses that have to do directly with teaching students in a hospital setting. For me, uh, my background, I actually have a music degree. That was my, I did a music education degree with a minor in, um, it was called special education, but inclusive education at the time. And it just happened that there was an opening and that's where I was placed. I think Mm. a lot of teachers who are in these positions, they do have specializations in other areas, but do have a real interest in working with. kind of that inclusive education realm of students with, uh, behavior, medical complexities, and really finding ways to adapt the classroom to their needs.
1: Right. Yeah. So, so to Brian, to your point of like, of this kind of blowing your mind, like it, 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 it's very cool, but it, but it also like, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, especially as a, as a kid who spent a lot of time in and out of the hospital, um, Although I was pretty lucky in that, like any time I did spend in the hospital, it, was, it wasn't really long extended periods of time. It was usually two weeks. Um, but I, I, I'm trying to, I'm like racking my brain to think about the times that I spent at the IWK, which is the children's hospital here. If I spent time in there with a teacher that was a part of like the floor that I was on. And I, I honestly, I can't, I, I have a bad memory anyway, but I, c- I can't remember if that was ever something that I, that I did, or if like I was receiving schoolwork from the school that was mm-hmm. sent to me by my, you know, b- b- via my parents or whatever. Um, but what I, what I can imagine what I'm thinking about right now is that those times when I was spending two, three weeks on end living on a unit in a hospital where I can't go anywhere else. Um, I was not sharing that floor with kids that were all the same age as me. You know, it was like I was in grade three. There was a kid in there who was in grade nine. There was a kid in there who was, you know, their final year of high school, like a whole broad range. So when you're when you are doing this type of work, um, what's the logistics? Like how does it work? Do you yeah, I, I guess you, you're like it would make sense to to kind of go the old school like small town Newfoundland route where you bring all the kids, no
2: matter what their age, into this small schoolroom setting. And you got your parents in Newfoundland are in your class with you and stuff because they still haven't you know, finished <laughs> yeah. high school yeah. or whatever. So there's wow. Like- <laughs> hey, my dad. That <laughs> my,
1: was brutal. Hey, my dad. My my dad. My dad. Also from Newfoundland never finished his grade 12 so that this is quite possible um so 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 if it, if that's not the case or maybe it is maybe maybe i'm totally wrong but i'm assuming that it wouldn't make sense to bring you know a group of kids ranging from ages 6 to 17 or 18 all in one room i just timed it that's the longest question we've ever asked on <laughs> <Yeah. point>. how <laughs> like
2: because miranda was laughing like <laughs> uh, two minutes ago because she was like oh this is funny i can't wait to tell you yeah. all about this <laughs> yeah. how, uh, so
1: what what is the process like do you do you go from room to room or do you kind of hold down a base and everyone comes to you on their own scheduled time
0: so the teachers who are um, on wards in the hospital, I would say they're logistic wizards because every day looks different. And like you were saying, depending on the space and the availability, um, for example, here in Saskatchewan, there are two different approaches that happen. Um, there are often classrooms on that ward. So there is the opportunity for um, students or adolescents to come together and actually meet in that, cl- in that space together mm-hmm. um, and do whatever work is um again this is kind of twofold and this comes into that logistic wizardry part where the teachers in the hospital find ways to communicate with the home schools and the home schools if they're able to connect with them often provide work so they're able to say hey we're in on this math lesson here's um here's a sheet can you guys just try and do this or we're reading this story do you have access to this um, so there's that piece of it, but then there's also uh, bedside support as well. So there are really? lots of children and adolescents who aren't able to leave their rooms um, for isolation purposes or um, for behavior or whatever the pieces are. So there's also opportunity during the day for one-to-one bedside service as well.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm, God, I'm, I'm so am so really do like, have to wear a lot of hats. If there was a, a teacher Olympics, I feel like yeah. hospital teachers would be like the gold medalists because, like, they just just imagine all of the information you need to know. Like, imagine you have a kid in grade three who needs uh, help, you know, doing a book report, and then there's a kid in grade twelve who's like, you know, needs to know about Taking the physics. ribosomes and the yeah. things in biology stuff mm-hmm. that, like, obviously Mito- I don't remember anything about. Yeah. Um, but like, is it is it hard to sort of switch hats that that quickly and and know that much <laughs>
0: I think part of it is, is you. is we're very open when we, we know that we don't know things and we make it fun. And again, we don't necessarily need to know the answers to all of the questions that you're doing on your chemistry assignment, but we can help you find ways to learn that. And I think yeah. that's part of the teaching piece is it's not always about knowing all that information.
2: Mm-hmm. It's really
0: helping the students find those answers. And I think also making it fun because um, for an example, there was a student here who was uh, she was outpatient program and she would come into the hospital for dialysis however many times uh, per week that she had and she would actually complete her schooling and um, some of her grade 12 classes in there but I think it's also make coming back to that fun part is you're in a hospital you have lots and lots of people around you it's okay to ask other people questions mm-hmm. right you have you have a way to to make it normal and I think that's that one big piece where a lot of people will say well why would you do school. Why would you do school when you're in the hospital? Isn't your uh, mental health or isn't your uh, physical health more important? But I think the one part that more um, that disconnect happened is school is normal. School is normal for those kids. That is mm. probably the most normal part of their day.
3: Mm, yeah. when,
0: you have, when they have school, they know what to expect. And I think that's that one part that the hospital teachers kind of continue to reinforce is school is normal for these kids.
1: Yeah. And I guess that's like a good point to why, why this is so important, you know, aside from the fact that children need to learn and like school going through the the process of school is like an integral part of becoming an adult, but that having that normalcy is like a big, a big piece of why this is so important. Are there other, other reasons why what you do is so important outside of like the, the obvious of like, oh, well, kids need school.
0: I really think that normalcy piece may even be bigger than the learning piece, because for the students, when you're in the hospital, everything is new. The smells are new. The sounds are new. The people are new. There's so many pieces. But when you hear school, um, you know what that looks like. You know what your expectations are in those settings. And I think that's really important. Mm. And again, even if you're just doing a coloring page or a word search, it gives you that time to do something you know how to do and that you are really good at. Mm -hmm. I think that other piece too, is it's not always about the kids. It's always about that family approach, right? When we talk about those multidisciplinary teams, when we talk about um, kind of meeting the family where they're at and really providing those supports to the families. The one thing that that school does is also provide that normalcy for the parents. Mm -hmm. Let's say that child was having one hour of um, of bedside schooling during the day. Well, to the parent, the teacher would say, "Okay, we're going to work on X, Y, Z. The parent knows what's happening to their child during that time. They're not going to be taken away for any tests. They're not Mm -hmm. going to be or it's possible that they're less scared. So it gives that normalcy to the parents where they're able to go take a shower, make the phone call, cry in their car go get some food and just be able to breathe and bring a little bit of normalcy back to their day as well. So yeah. I think there's, there's a few different uh, sides to that for sure.
2: Yeah, Not uh, to mention the fact that like being in a hospital right. is so fucking boring sometimes too, yeah. that like, that being able to go to school, imagine the silver lining of like, like school is probably like one of the least exciting parts of your day when you're a kid, maybe not like, like the social aspect is obviously really exciting as a kid, but like the actual work that you're doing um, might not be your favorite part of the day as a kid. But, you know, being in a hospital when all you have to do is stare at beige walls or like, you know, when you're in the hospital, chair binging like a Netflix series or something like that. Like it's all quick. Um, yeah, it does get old quick. And as so an like, adult, I mean, so uh, like, I don't know. Wouldn't it be sweet if, as a, as an adult, you got to go to school? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. If, I, if I had some word searches and <laughs> and uh, had add a and coloring a book, fuck
3: yeah. yeah. Are you uh, kidding me? I just want to. Uh, I just want to um, emphasize something you said a few minutes ago, Miranda. That that really struck me when you when you mentioned um, um, that you know if something comes up that you don't know the answer to, that you don't you know that you know, that that you're looking for, um, maybe you, maybe you tap another resource or you, or you have the, or you might not know how to, um, like the answer, but you know how to pass along the skills for finding the answer. And I just want to emphasize like from a teaching perspective, the, the like universality of teaching, whether it's, whether it's teaching, you know, from a professional standpoint that you come from in any setting, whether it's, um, you know, a a parent teaching their kid, whatever that they need to teach my, from my perspective, it's teaching yoga. I'm actually starting a yoga teacher training tonight. And something that comes up a lot in that setting of teaching when we're teaching teachers is, can I teach this? Like, I don't feel right about teaching this yoga pose that is, that I can't physically do. And our, and our, our answer to that is always, like study the mechanics of the pose and and so that you can teach it without doing it, that you can describe it and understand it even though maybe the physical manifestation of it isn't accessible for you or how to make it accessible. And just that the nature of being able to pass along the idea or the avenue that you have to go down to arrive at the answer and maybe not necessarily knowing the answer itself like i just think that that is like a really important aspect of teaching you know like across the whole spectrum of whatever situation you find yourself in where you're having to teach something to somebody and anyway, that just like stood out to me i wanted to to put a uh, put an emphasis on that
1: i uh i yeah, want to absolutely i want to ask uh, one of the questions that came in from one of our patrons uh stina wow. knew that we were going to be talking to you today And she asked, how challenging is it to have to prepare lesson plans for all grade levels? Have you ever gotten feedback from a patient's school on how well the student was prepared when returning to the classroom?
0: Yeah, that's a great logistic question for sure. One of the pieces is there's not a lot of forward lesson planning, and I think that's one of the things that differs uh, quite significantly from the traditional mainstream classroom setting, than the hospital setting a lot of your planning is doesn't done in very, very small chunks, whether it's one day planning the day up, or maybe planning two or three days. So there's two different ways that the teachers often approach that. Uh, First is connecting with the home schools. So if we can connect with the home schools, and they're able to provide the work that that student is doing now, not only is it, um, I don't want to say easier for the teacher, uh, but it, it, it provides that continuity of learning, but it also has that connection that that student has right away. That sheet looks familiar, those questions look familiar, it, it it's less detached from what they're doing right now. Um, so having that connection with the home schools happen very quickly is really, really important. The second piece too is having a general idea of what topics are covered in all of the grades and all of the subjects. Now, these aren't things that we have memorized by any means, but again, with the use of technology, we have access. Again, as professionals, we have access to all of this information. So being able to quickly have an idea of um, what they're working on. The other thing is, too, very often, um, the student may not want to work on what they're working what, or what they were working on in school, and that's okay. We're not there to say, you must, you shall, you, that kind of XYZ. We really want to be there to support them in their learning. So yeah. many of the teachers are really quick and have a lot of really good go-to resources that can engage the student. Again, it's not necessarily about you need to learn how to do this algebraic question before you're discharged. Yeah but it's, we want to engage you in something that you're comfortable with. You mean
2: like the, uh, like resources, like the, um, pulling in the wheelie cart with the TV on it and then putting on a Bill Nye the Science Guy movie or something that like that. That was like my favorite right? time of day. <laughs>
0: Those are the best days, absolutely. <laughs> no, but, but in terms of that though, the one piece that has been really nice is the technology piece. And I think with COVID, while I mean, there's lots of negative and, and difficult pieces that came out of it, I think one of the positive pieces for sure is a lot of the students who are often in the hospitalized or are often homebound um, because it's not a safe or their treatment Um, it's not, they're not able to go to school. I really think the the forcing us to get more comfortable with technology has really benefited these students. They're Mm -hmm. able to have that connection to their school. And again, that continuity of learning. If you look at everything from teachers, uh, many teachers are comfortable using digital platforms like Google Classroom or um, Mm -hmm. Edsby is one of them. Um, Those really have that ability to keep to, to remove that disconnect. So I think the technology piece has been really important as well.
2: Did you see during COVID where, where um, kids who were in the hospital able to actually sit in on classes with their classmates where before, because classes weren't virtual, um, they were able to for a certain period of time? Did that happen at
0: all? I think it differed for everyone depending mm-hmm. on what hospital you're in and, and the nature of the child. But I do think that there are was more opportunities for that, whether the technology was provided through the school division wh- uh, whether parents were becoming more comfortable just using their phones or their tablets. Um, I do think there were more students um, in those hospital or those homebound situations who were able to access education for sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: what was what is a, a typical uh, day in the life like for you because I like i as soon as you as soon as we said hospital teacher. I just like completely made up what I thought um, your day would be like in my head. Um, and I'm not going to say it here now, um, which I know. Uh, anyway, I'll just won't say it, but uh, I'm curious Smooth. if you can, uh, if you can walk us through what like a typical day would be like for you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So very often it would start off in the morning um, meeting with some of the charge nurses just to see who's on the ward. Um, again, things happen overnight and we're not always sure. So having that opportunity to say who is there, then having that opportunity to meet some of the students and the families to see if it's something that they want to engage in. Now, being involved in the hospital school programs, it's not mandatory. It's just mm. a service that's being offered. So just because you are um, admitted onto a ward doesn't mean that you must then complete school. It's very much just a service that's offered, or that's that's welcome to join. So just going around and, and having a quick visit to see with the the families and with the um, the youth or the adolescents to see if it's something that they that they'd be interested in mm. during that time. Um, after that, uh, many. Uh, myself or many other teachers we provide that in classroom opportunity whether it's an hour or two hours where anyone who's interested is able to come and we can meet in person and go over um, different individual lessons that they're working on or just do an activity together and then in the afternoon there's that opportunity for bedside uh, one-to-one teaching as well that is possible There are some teachers too that also do homebound support as well. So students who are in their home and but who are not admitted on a ward are actually eligible for so many hours of uh, direct teaching support as well. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Do you know, like, do you know what the scenario is outside of Saskatchewan? Like, is this um, is this a a service that is provided? In most provinces? And like, are there some provinces that are doing it better than others?
0: Uh, Yes, and yes. So in Canada, there are a lot of the major centers do have teachers who are um, within the hospital setting. Um, In terms of like Saskatchewan, I know we have five altogether, five maybe six, depending on what the enrollments are like. Um, Calgary has a big crew, BC, Toronto, they all have crews as well, but it often looks very different um, province to province. I am unsure of what the supports are like in the territories. We haven't been able to connect with them, but also this is a thing that not only happens in Canada, that happens in the United States. The structure is a bit different, but there are hospital school teachers in the United States, and there's also hospital school teachers across the globe.
3: I wanted to ask you about about um, in in mainstream in mainstream schools, which is is a is a is a self explanatory term to me. Um, but it's a, it's actually the first time I'm hearing it referred to that. Um, and and correct me if I'm wrong. After I said it's self explanatory, but like that K to twelve, like K to twelve public school is like what I think of when I think mainstream school. Um, and I'm wondering what the um you know growing up in the public school system you know you you you, you I, I always saw that there was um that there was you know people that had um considerations whether that was like mental physical um you know people that that were always with uh that were always with their own teacher that were always um in their in their own program and then also students that were you know in class with me that would left for like supplemental learning and things like that and i'm wondering from uh from the perspective of the teacher that is handling those students whether it's supplemental or whether it's like a, a full-time um a full-time um crew of kids that you're working with depending on their um the adaptations that they need what is the the like the hierarchy of assessment for determining how to best serve those students that you're working with you know what what, what Yeah. What, what is the most like important piece when you're considering how to work with a student um, to, to best suit their needs? And, And, and like, what are, what, yeah, what is that, you know, top one, two, three, four things or something like that?
0: Okay. Absolutely. So there, there is a process in, in every school division and every province, the process is a little bit different, but when you mentioned the numbers um, that brought to mind what's called the tiered approach or um, response to intervention is kind of the professional lingo piece of it there. So there are different types of accommodations and modifications that can be put in place to help students. In terms of priority, uh, most school divisions will look at safety being the first one. Now, safety can encompass multiple different things. Safety could mean um, everything from students with seizures or students who have life-threatening allergies or or if they um, get injured at school, something uh, could require significant medical care. It could also mean any students who um, have the potential to harm themselves or harm others um, during, (laughs) during the school day. So safety is always that most intense, um, Priority there. From that, then we move into different types of learning and environmental needs. So then you would go into students who may require assistive technology, they may require additional adult supervision, adult support. Um, And again, because it can range so many different things, it could be everything from a student who is newly diagnosed with diabetes, they may need to have an adult who regularly checks in on them to ensure that they're checking their levels that they're communicating that home, but that also knows what it looks like when that student becomes low, Mm. or something like that, Um, or it may be all the way to um, this student just needs a little bit of pull out support for um, academic support, maybe they need additional support with writing or math, we do that. But then there's also, um, again, depending where you are, often larger urban centers have more flexibility um, and more, uh, more populations to do this. But there are, when you reference back to that mainstream school, right, kind of that regular classroom that we, look, that we kind of looked at, some urban school divisions also have some supportive classrooms. So there may be students who have um, very high anxiety where it's very, very difficult for them to come to school or to engage in um, in the, the school or in the academic environment. So some of those supportive programs, there may be a program for students specifically with anxiety or with oh. autism. Um, yeah, so it just kind of depends where they're at. But yeah, there absolutely is a process to, to support students and also find a way to uh, communicate clearly those supports to the families. So they're very aware of how those decisions are made.
1: What, what has
3: the last 10 years in terms of the way I mean, probably more like five years is probably the more intense period. But I feel like ten. I feel like ten years is probably a good a good spectrum of time to look at it, at least from from our perspective here on the podcast. And then in the last five years, like really ramped up the conversation around mental health has obviously changed a lot. Um, How has that impacted the way that you that you go about um, you know determining and supporting determining whether people need support and how that support is offered? in schools or 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 in the hospital setting or wherever that teaching is is taking place.
0: Yeah, I think we've I think like every every profession and every industry has really come a long way in their understanding of what mental health is, really trying to remove um, those stigmatizing characteristic behaviors and really trying to understand this is how your brain works, this is how your body responds to trauma, this is how your body responds to stress, different things like that. Um, and I think schools are doing a really good job on a few different fronts. I think they're doing a really good job with uh, community, communicating with other uh, professionals. So whether it's communicating with family doctors, with counselors, with uh, different agencies that they're working with, really finding ways to provide that continuity of care and understanding. Um, the other piece, too, is I think I think just the compassion piece has really um, has really come to the forefront and understanding what types of supports students need based on those mental health pieces. So finding ways to support anxiety in the classroom, finding ways to support depression in the classroom, um, and just being able to, to open up those conversations for sure.
3: And Um, from where you sit, sorry guys for just dominating. I just want to ask one more question on this thing here, but from, from where you sit, is that something that like over the last five years, people in your profession are going, are going, Oh, finally, or, or are you, or, or do you feel like people in your profession are, are, are are on the same sort of upswing as, as the general public or that you've been there and now everyone else is sort of catching up as well.
0: I think it would depend who you talk to. I personally feel like, like we've been there for a while. Um, but I think now it's becoming uh, more commonplace to have those conversations yeah. and to and to provide those supports whereas previously um, parents may not have been comfortable sharing diagnosis with the school or supports um, for that but i think there's a or i i feel from my perspective there's a lot more um comfort in having those conversations about sharing diagnosis, sharing supports. Hey, you know what? This actually works for us at home. When this student is showing these behaviors, this is what we do. Hey, do you want to try that? And then we try it and we have those communications back and forth. It's not the you're at school, you listen to what I say, you do what I do, you go home and it's a different world. So Ooh. I think we're really trying hard to to provide that continuity of care mm-hmm. for sure.
2: So, speaking of, uh, of mental health, I'm curious about what your experience has been like with With your mental health in relationship to i'm imagining that um, um you don't discriminate discriminate against students who are terminally ill or diagnosed I'm sure that you that school is offered to them up up until the last you know sort of moments or days or weeks that they're able to um have the energy to do that uh have you had an experience or or many experiences where you've worked with children who have, you know, eventually passed away? And how do you manage that? Because I imagine that it's much more common in your job uh, than it would be for in the traditional quote unquote mainstream teaching field.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I have had those, um, those teaching experiences for sure. It's really interesting um, working with families who have, members or who have children who have life limiting illnesses, for sure. It's a very... I don't want to say it's completely different conversations, but it's also very common conversations as well. We really take the lead off of the child and off of the family. If they want to engage in school, absolutely, we will do it. If they don't, that's okay too. But very often the child um, or the adolescent really does want to engage in, in school and does just want to do things that they're able to do. Again, if you're sitting in your room, always thinking about worst case scenarios, that's not good for anyone at any age. And one of the the things that lots of the teachers note as well lots of the hospital school teachers is that when these children are engaged in learning in the hospital setting they really do look much better they're more mm. um welcome to conversation they're more present and it just really has had that that positive effect
2: mm. i imagine too that like being because i think of you know the role models that i had and mentors that i had growing up oftentimes they were they were they were my teachers they were the people that i could go to when you know i was struggling to find somebody to talk to about you know my emotional experience being a kid going through this world so uh, i imagine that you you must have pretty um interesting emotional and and really well connected conversations with some of these kids who are going through some of these tough times and like knowing that you know your role isn't a therapist but you know at the same time you're a human being and supporting a, a kid going through something must be quite rewarding. Do you have, do you find that oftentimes kids will feel comfortable, you know, sort of talking to you about some of the challenges that they're going through?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's this wonderful balance of being incredibly heavy, heavy and incredibly humbling as well mm-hmm. that the, that the children really would, would honor you by sharing their stories with you. Yeah. In terms of, of my own mental health, again, Really trying to be proactive and being aware of what I need when I'm feeling overwhelmed, when I'm feeling that um, I'm maxed out, being able to to take days off when you need your days off, because it's real. And and if you're showing up and you're not present and Mm. um, you're not in a good place, it really is not good for the children um, who are there as well.
1: What what kind of uh, what kind of like professional development do you do you have to consider when doing this type of work? Because like I can imagine, again, not having like specialized in this in in school for yourself and, and kind of just diving into this career um, and and just the ways that things change in the world. I mean, COVID was a good example of like how COVID really changed everything, every profession in some way. Um, Are there like are there sort of like continuing education um, goals that you're striving to hit like every year to kind of stay on top of the job that you do?
0: So there wasn't anything formally, um, especially here in Canada, that was able to provide those professional development opportunities. Very often, we were able to jump in on more generic training for stress stress management or Mm -hmm. trauma-informed practices and other professions. Um, So one of the things that myself and another hospital school teacher did here in in Saskatchewan is we actually created a professional development network where we had the opportunity to connect all of the hospital school teachers in Saskatchewan. And we have an opportunity to formally meet four times a year and really talk about the things that are specific to us. And we have done everything from listening to um, a podcast from you guys to really pulling out that academic literature Mm. to bringing in different professionals um, in different areas and sharing what they do to also bringing in organizations like Beads of Courage and Ronald McDonald House and talking about how they support the same families uh, that we work with.
1: That's really cool. So, I, I mean, do you have any plans on broadening out that network, like outside of Saskatchewan Saskatchewan, uh, and, <laughs> and including and including, so. including other provinces or other cities in, in Canada?
0: So we would absolutely love to. Um, all of the members of our Saskatchewan network were also members of what's called HEAL, the Hospital Educator and Academic Liaison Association. And it's actually based out of the state's. And there's a few different um, Canadian teachers who have jumped on board, but it's primarily um, related and connecting people in the United States. Mm. We would absolutely love to connect with more people um, and more like-minded hospital teachers in Canada, for sure. We've connected with a crew out of Calgary. We were able to meet with them virtually and have some really wonderful Mm. conversations. But yeah, I think that would be something really amazing if we were able to Um, to start more of a Canadian chapter to be able to provide those really specific professional development opportunities, but also to, again, to have that time to sit and be real and and talk with like-minded people. Mm -hmm. That's that piece where, um, again, anyone who's ever had that opportunity, you can't always describe how meaningful and how purposeful and how, um, how much it just kind of refills you that Mm -hmm. you need. So I think it's really, really important to provide them. These teachers often work in isolation, um, in the sense that they may be the only teacher in their hospital.
2: They may be the only
0: teacher in their province or in their territory. So, not only are they navigating through the difficulties and the complexities of the education system, they're also an outsider in the medical system trying to navigate and and kind of elbow their way through that system as well. So right, I think right. it's really important to be able to give them that platform and to, to have that commonality for sure. Huh.
2: Well, guys, I think I'm calling. calling. <coughs> yeah, yep. there you is go is you missed right yet another, yet another <laughs> calling. Yeah, exactly. You
3: <laughs> um, I, 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 um, a question that kind of popped up in my head or, or early on in, in the conversation that I was, uh, you know, excited to, excited to ask you further down the line after we talked for a while is, um, you know, w- in, in the experience of working with, you know, people, uh, kids in the hospital, kids in the, kids in the, in the mainstream school system who, who have, who have these, you know, more, um, more gross and obvious, um, things that they need to be considered in terms of their education and how they learn and 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 their um environment um and then also and then also acknowledging that that every person has something that allows them to learn better and and yeah the preferred
2: it, style of learning
3: not the preferred style of learning <laughs> but the but um <laughs> the uh the you know w- when you have a public school system. Um, that is, you know, only has, you know, limited amount of funding and, you know, and depending on where you are in the, in the, in the country, you've, you know, you've got some massive class sizes and, t- you know, the teacher to student ratio is, is, is incredibly lopsided and, and the larger the classroom, the more challenging it becomes to give individualized attention to like the learning needs of a person, um, and in in my own experience i i was in public school from the time i was from the time i started school until a, until grade 10 and i was really fortunate to get a, a a scholarship to play hockey at a at one of the top academic private schools in the U, us and it really cha- and and then and i went from you know 30 person classrooms to like 5 to 7 or 10 person classrooms and that was a massive difference and i really kind of Fell into a new era of like curiosity and learning, and it wasn't only just because of that, but a bunch of different factors. But um, it really, like, it really kind of opened my eyes to, you know, when when the opportunity is there to get more personalized, individualized attention to how you need to learn, then you know, you, you just get, you just get, you know, smarter, more engaged, more curious people. Um, from, so, so going back to the start of the question, from your experience of working with people who need, you know, really need some really deep thought in in terms of how they learn, what are some of the things that the, that the, the like average classroom, whether it's in Saskatchewan or whether it's in, you know, any province or Canada in general could take from the work that you do and, and apply it to the average classroom to get to, to engage students in a, in a better way. And uh, congratulations, Taylor, for
1: breaking the lo- world's longest question say, in the same episode that the record was already
3: set. I was going to say, really it intense. seemed like
2: ever since Taylor Shattering. said that you broke that, it seemed like he made multiple attempts to go at it. And, and he then finally, finally did got it. It. He finally finally got got it. it. he you finally got, got it. You know
3: back. how competitive I am. <laughs>
2: Miranda, I'm, I'm done. Okay. The I'm done now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Miranda's Trying like to, Miranda's yeah. answer is <laughs> <Yeah>. TLDR, dude.
0: <laughs> I can start the answer with a story. Um, yes. <laughs> so, so I think part of it is really um, the takeaway is really honoring that those students really are on that journey, and not ignoring that they have diabetes or they broke their legs or they were just diagnosed with cancer or um they have continuing uh mental health difficulties i think from that classroom perspective when we ignore that then we're really doing a disservice to those students and to those adolescents so finding ways to to honor The process that they're going through. So, for example, um, maybe a student is is homebound for a while and rather than uh, creating kind of a a make work uh, homework assignment for them, you can you can integrate so many different subjects areas into. Uh, or just having that student talk about their journal or, or how, talking about their journey so they could log the medical appointments that they have mm, they could write yeah. down the questions that they have they could write down their reflections you could collect pictures you could research a different job of one of the um, professionals that you're working with I think it's just finding a way to to really again honor what they're going through and I think when we ignore that these students have these other challenges in their life is when um, is when we start to get that disengagement with learning. So I think that's one of the biggest pieces too. And and like you were saying that, there there really is a difference in learning moving from those large class sizes to the smaller class sizes. So I think one of the things that the hospital school teachers do a really good job at is making those connections and just really sitting and being present with the students. One of the opportunities that I had while working in the rehabilitation center is I was working with a student um, who was there on respite and he used, this was probably 15 years ago, used a Dynavox for communication. So if you're not familiar with that, um, really kind of the old school iPad idea where he was able to touch the what he wanted to say in pictures mm. and share that, it's quite laborious for the student, and it's also quite laborious um, for those communication pieces. So in the typical classroom, it, it's very unfortunate, but it really doesn't... Um, allow for that child to be able to share what they know mm-hmm. uh, but one of the pieces in the hospital settings with the student who was there on but it just happened that I didn't have any other students at that time it was just him so I had him for two hours a day for a few days in a row and for the very first time he and I wrote a story so we were able to um, give him kind of two options or three options. He could use his hand to use a spinner. And if it landed on an idea, I would read it out loud. If he liked it, he would say yes. If he didn't like it, he would say no. And we went through this whole process. So by the end of his time, he had actually written his very own story
2: Mm, um, that he
0: was able to to do. So I think, yeah, it's just really when you do have that individual time, just using that time to to connect with the the Mm. students for real.
3: Mm -hmm. It's such a it's such a glaring like the class size, the class size thing like I I, and and acknowledging that like funding government funding is like really hard, (laughs) like really hard to budget and allocate things. But when I think about my experience and a big chunk of that being from going from massive classes to smaller classes, it was like. Well, that like that turned me into that turned me from a person who like really didn't give a shit about school to being like, I want to learn and I want to I want to I want to I want to pursue these different things and learn now. And and, you know, I see a class list in in grade 12 that I could just take, you know, I could essentially take the year off and graduate but i've got these electives and i want to make the most of that mm-hmm. stuff cuz i'm i'm curious now
2: honestly could be the reason you're a sociopath though too because like less Ooh, right. Ooh, less like Ooh. person like human interaction because yep. for me like yep. i always <laughs> love i love the bigger the class the better until yep. so like cuz like i was always look i was looking at that kid over there he's struggling today i'm feeling it cuz i'm an empath and so i'd be walking up to him i'd be like you want to share a book or something i play with them yeah. i didn't really care and so much about maybe the maybe is why you have adhd, ADHD. Yeah. exactly right there's yeah. so much action yeah. going on i really love that though, and I, you know, I'm happy that it's you the heard that you understand. heard it here
1: first, people. I'm a sociopath because of small
3: classes. <laughs> that's that's, it. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. It's quite
2: possible. It's
1: quite possible. Uh And that is the biggest takeaway of uh, today's conversation, <laughs> folks. Uh Miranda, th- I gotta say, you have you have such a beautiful job, and and not an easy job, but one that that seems extraordinarily rewarding. So I want to say thank you for for opening our eyes up to something that we really didn't know much about and and I feel so grateful to have had um, just a sliver of your time today to sit down and talk about talk about teaching in hospitals. Thank you so much. Is there mm. anything that you wanted to like really hit on before we before we wrap this up?
0: Yeah, I think there's two pieces. Um, one is I really want to do, um, to draw people's attention to, again, two of those different organizations, Beads of Courage and Ronald McDonald House, because mm. they really do wrap around families in these situations. Um, these little beads I have on here today are actually called Carrier Beads uh, or Carrier Beads. So, what um, even the general public is able to do is you can order these beads and you can wear them when you go on an adventure or on a trip or when you do something that you um, are doing out of your comfort zone or something that you're doing to be brave. So what I'll actually be able to do after our time together today is I'll share some pictures, I'll write a little story, and I'll be able to send these beads uh, back to Beads of Courage, and they'll actually be able to send it to a, to a child or an adolescent who is on their uh, medical journey, their medical health journey, Ooh. and they'll actually be able to have this bead uh, with them and to be able to hear the story of our time together today. Oh, so, that's yeah, so that's that's sweet. Cool. That's I love awesome. that.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, I,
2: I'm I'm really glad to be a part of that. That's that's yeah. very, that's, <laughs> that's very actually exciting. super convenient because you don't really have to write that much. You can just send the link to the podcast. Yeah, like, yeah, can
1: exactly. You, hey? Can that's you do? Technology. Can you make sure that you do write down something about Taylor being a sociopath, though? Just so because so, it takes 100%. us a lot of courage to yeah. get in this room with him sometimes. And, <laughs> wow.
0: And and I think the second piece too is really moving forward when we talk about. Um, A lot of students and and children who have these medical experiences, and I think uh, one of your previous guests, Montana, spoke about this as well, is the mental health impact of these medical journeys as well, and these medical complexities, and how when we watch all of these advances in uh, medical science and treatment coming through again, while they are absolutely amazing, and while we should... Um, continue to research and continue to praise those advancements. I don't think we can be. I don't really don't think we can ignore any longer um, mental health supports that are very specific to these populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something for me personally that I really am moving in the direction of. I've started my journey as. Um, a registered psychologist here in saskatchewan so i'm a provisional right now just very kind of starting out that journey and i really Amazing. want to to focus on supporting those those students and families who have um, those medical and mental health complexities but also having that background and that understanding of how education uh, ties into those pieces Ooh. as well so yeah that's really kind of where where i'd like to go and and finding kind of new ways to support the the same demographic
1: Amazing. Well keep keep us posted on, on how that goes. We would love to follow your journey as you as you go along with that. That's really awesome. Absolutely. Thanks so much for taking time into your day today. This has been really fun.
0: You're welcome. Thank you guys.
3: That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in.
2: If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy
1: Podcast is a snack labs production. It is produced by myself. Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGillvary, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin, and Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonas. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor, and I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy.